Man, as always, it is an absolute pleasure to be with you guys. Um, we're so grateful to be a part of your guys' community. And um, yeah, like Ray said, being a part uh, in a small way, in a, you know, in a remote community in, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea and having the technology to not only hear the good news of what God is doing at Living Way, but see, like we were able to uh, live stream and, and watch the messages and just kind of watch this whole episode unfold for you guys. And we were so blown away by God's faithfulness. And we were so incredibly encouraged. And it is a sweet gift that although the sorrow and the suffering that we had experienced previously in this season of Malayali, we get to be here in this season to enjoy the sweetness of God's good gifts to living way. That's a, a privilege, a privilege of ours. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part. Um, of the Living Way community. And Ray is correct. Uh, he explained it so well, better than I could, simply because from the very beginning, 12 years of age, when I started uh, preaching for churches and having Bible studies and really getting into the Word, loving it and having the desire to teach it, I said from the very beginning, I would never ask a pastor or a church to preach. I just, I'm not going to put myself out there like that until this moment, this moment where God impressed upon me something so heavy, um, so magnificent and brilliant in regards to his glorious nature and how he interacts with the church. And I was so impressed by this that it became a weight that weight turned into just a burning and then I just said fine caution to the wind Ray this has never happened but I'm inviting myself to come and preach to living way oh man but it is my privilege it is my privilege it's my privilege to maybe open your eyes for the very first time to an untold or maybe unseen story of the Bible. But it is my absolute privilege and honor to begin to either make, make your eyes open or remind you of the privilege and the position that you have been given because of the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. We are living in one of the most strangest times. If you can recall a message a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I'm not sure, but Pastor James talked about the, about the demands, the glorious demands of Jesus Christ to not remain in the crowds, but to actually become a disciple. And he said, these times are different Tribulation and suffering is coming. Are you prepared? Oh, that was so incredibly important. And something along those same lines that was written so long ago 
allegorically, but man prophetically. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. It was a It was an allegorical um, writing in regards to a head demon giving advice to a younger demon. Screwtape was giving uh, information to his younger apprentice, uh, Wormwood. And he wrote this in the book. Now, how C.S. Lewis thought of these things and wrote these things down, I have no idea. The Holy Spirit uh, opened his heart, opened his mind, and illuminated all these things because the book is just absolutely amazing. If you can grab it, read it. You could do it in a night. But this is one of the things that this head demon was saying to his apprentice. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes all of our boldest demons uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. There is a realm that is completely unseen to our eyes. There is the heavenly places that we cannot see, and so God himself wrote it in a book so that we could read it. That we would not only understand what the heavenlies are, but what is in the heavenlies, what is placed in the heavenlies, and this outside realm, this unseen realm that we cannot see, he has written so that we would at least know. Know what is there. But C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago, and it is still so incredibly potent. Our greatest ally, this demon says, is the church itself, because the power of the church is invisible to them. I am more convinced than ever more convinced than ever that if we do not fully understand what has happened in the realm of the unseen, then we will never fully grasp or see the magnitude of our heavenly privilege and our earthly position in Jesus Christ. And this is my fear for the church. If we don't grasp what we have in Christ and we, we, we try to advance the gospel in a dark world, we would, do it, we would do it sheepishly, sitting off to the side, embarrassed to even utter the name of the name that is above every other name. Or we may get desperate. We may get desperate and try to appeal to our cities and the people in our cities, downgrading the gospel in in its glorious demands to make it more palatable for people to feel comfortable enough just to remain in the crowds. That they don't have to become disciples, they can just be in the crowds. Nevertheless, making them feel comfortable to remain in the crowds and not become disciples, but nevertheless damning them to an eternity in hell because we were too embarrassed to share the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not what you are doing. 
This is not what Living Way is doing, but this is what's at stake if we don't fully grasp who we are and what we've been called to do in Jesus Christ. This is why we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we could set our minds on the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen, so that we can behold that what is ours in Christ has been fully, finally, and forevermore accomplished. Not just what we have in Christ, but we can sit and we can savor this wondrous mystery that because of what the Father has accomplished through Christ, we are now His chosen people. We are His priesthood. We are His holy nation. We are His prized possession that we have been given privilege bestowed upon us this immense privilege for the position of being able to proclaim his excellencies to people that are perishing and so our text this morning if you have your bibles you can turn to first peter first peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And as you turn there, I want to take a moment and pray for us. Oh God, would you enlighten our eyes that we may see the unseen. Would you enlarge our hearts that we could love you more and run in the way of your commandments with an eagerness and a ferocity, not just to obey you in word, but to obey you in deed, that we would see and savor the mystery of what you have done through your power in not only putting your son to death, but raising him to life so that we can experience family. Oh God, would you just awaken our spirits to drink deeply of the riches of your word. Oh, would you help us to push everything away, lessen the distractions of our minds, Make everything clear. Guide us in your words so that we could see the beauty of who you are and what you have done through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we glorify you today, both in the reading, the hearing, and the experiencing of your word. And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. This morning, this is what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to be doing a light speed run, 30,000 feet in the Old Testament, in order to see the grand picture of Scripture. The reason why I'm going to be doing this is because there is an untold story in the Old Testament, either untold or unseen. But this story specifically will not only give us encouragement for the current war that we're in, But this untold story has massive implications on understanding our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So we will drink deep in regards to this chronological story of the Old Testament in order to feast on 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 9. This is the untold story of the war that started in the Old Testament. If you have paper, you can write these down. But we're going we're gonna to move. We're going to move through the Old Testament so that we can see this story clearly. In the very beginning, God created all things perfectly. And in so doing, he created man and woman in perfect innocence. He placed them in the garden, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Placed them in Eden to guard and to cultivate this garden. They were commanded to multiply that their children and their children and their children, generation after generation, would be, this, would be, would be doing the same thing that their mother, and dather, their mother and father were doing. They would keep and cultivate this garden. Eventually, this garden would spread, and inevitably, this garden would cover the entire face of the earth. And there is an unseen plan, something that Scripture mentions but doesn't fully talk about, that man and woman, generation after generation, this garden spreading over and over and over the earth to cover it completely, they would then be glorified and they would be higher than the angels themselves. That they would not only judge the angels in First or First uh, Corinthians, but they would then be able to rule over the nations. That they are lower than the angels at this point, but they will become higher. And because of this, they were absolutely hated by Satan. Satan came into this garden to deceive them to stop this plan. Now, Satan's schemes have never changed. They're old, but they feel new to us. They are actively seeking to deceive you into thinking that you are less or that God is not enough. Not only are they seeking to deceive you, they are intentionally trying to dismantle the family unit. They hate you, and therefore they hate your children. They are aggressively dominating us with all things so that we would be distracted from what we have been called to do. This war, this war has been since the beginning. And Satan enters this garden, and we know the story. Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, failed by placing themselves as the ultimate authority. They disobeyed God, and therefore they were exiled from the garden. They went east. But now we see that the satanic attack against men and women were no longer just deceiving them into stopping this plan, but the, the demonic forces began to dismantle, to stop the seed from the promised Messiah coming. Genesis chapter 3, they lost the paradise, but they didn't lose their purpose. God reorientated or recommissioned them to do what he told them to do. Go forth, multiply Fill out the earth, fill up the earth with image bearers. And as we began to see the story of Noah, specifically in Genesis chapter 6, the sinfulness of man was exceedingly great. Every intention of his heart, every thought that he had was completely and absolutely wicked. 
Scripture also tells us that the sons of God, divine angelic beings, left their places of authority in the heavenly unseen realm and came down to start cohabitating with the race of daughters. This was not mere mere curiosity on the part of these angelic beings, but this was a war against the seed that would soon bring the Messiah. Sin was not only the cause of our ancestors' exile, but humanity's sin coupled with the divine being's sin, this would ultimately lead to the absolute destruction of the human race. One man, Noah, was found to be a friend of the Lord, and in so being, his family and the created order was rescued from the deluge, this this great flood, a flood that will never, ever again, to the degree at which it happened, it will never happen again. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 says, This one family, along with the created order, were rescued. But these fallen divine creatures who had left their place of authority and because of their disobedience to the Lord are now imprisoned, waiting for the eternal judgment that will come. They not only, humanity was not only deceived, they started to be dismantled, and so God created So all that God had created, he destroyed. But he saved Noah's family. And so God started over. When Noah and his three sons and their wives came out of the ark, the Lord came down and recommissioned them again, just like Adam and Eve. Go forth, multiply, fill up the earth. But what do we see? The descendants of Noah went further into the east. And as they went further into the east, a man rose up, Nimrod, and began to be a city builder. He called all to come and build the city so that they would not be scattered, but that they would build a tower in the middle of the city so that their names could be lifted up instead of Yahweh's name. And in so doing, they were dominated. You see, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were deceived. The story of Noah Humanity was starting to be dismantled. And now we see in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, they are being dominated. That their worship for Yahweh is no longer there, but their worship for themselves, that's their motivating force to build this city and this tower. That they would exalt themselves and not Yahweh. And so God gives them over to their demise. The Lord and his counsel did actually descend, but instead of marveling at them, Yahweh confused their languages and in so doing dispersed them throughout the land. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 12, Yahweh not only dispersed the people according to their brand new languages, but Yahweh appointed sons of God, angelic beings, to be rulers over these brand new peoples and their languages. A once numerous people with one language were exiled even further away from the garden. Not from the land, but from the very accessibility of Yahweh. He disinherits this single people group, confuses their one language into many, and because of their wickedness, he completely disassociates with them. 
scatters them abroad, driving, driving them further away. This event is ultimately what led to the coming up of many different nations and their land boundaries. Sad and devastating. Babel, in view of what we see in Genesis chapter 10, is sad but effective because God ultimately did what he was going to do. He spread them throughout the entire world. But absolutely, consequentially devastating. Because of Deuteronomy 32, verse 19. Because God, instead of telling them again what they must do and starting over, he gives them over to what they actually wanted. Empty, idolatrous worship. Not because they would no longer worship, but because when they worship, their worship would be devoid of him and his presence. That is sad. Most notably, this event is the Romans 1 event of the Old Testament. Yahweh giving them over to their own ways, not to be ruled by Yahweh, the creator of all things, but to be ruled by created things. Either at this point or soon to be, these angelic rulers would be disobedient. They would begin to deceive, dismantle, and dominate the people that they were over ultimately in line and subject to the king of this world, Satan. And in Psalm 82, Yahweh has a confrontation with these rulers and says, because of your disobedience, because you have not ruled correctly and have obeyed my words, you rulers, authorities, principalities will die like men. Therefore, Babel represents not only a divine decree to disinherit the nations, but this event in the Old Testament storyline will begin the war that is unseen. But it's prolific on every page in our canon. Yahweh and his people against the nations and their gods. And so make a mental note. Hundreds of years later, Yahweh chooses the line of Abraham. He then chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, a pagan man from a foreign land, to begin his mission to not only bless Abraham and his descendants, but a mission to bless the entire world because through the line of Abraham, what? The Messiah, the promised seed of the woman would come. Although they try to deceive, although they try to dismantle, although they try to dominate, Yahweh's saying, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. But there's so much more. There's so much more to the story of Abraham. Simply because, have you ever wondered why God told Abraham, hey, I just want to let you know, In Genesis chapter 15, Yahweh says to Abraham, I'm actually going to send your descendants into Egypt. For 400 years, they're going to become slaves. And he reassures Abraham of saying, it's not you, you're going to die in peace. But your descendants, that's where they will be. And from there, I will move them into your land. 
that I have promised. Have you ever wondered, what, what, what is that all about? Why? Why would God choose to move them into Egypt? Because Egypt, at this point in time, would have been the Mecca of idol worship. Would have been military, militarily the greatest might the world had ever known. And they were exceedingly abundant in their knowledge. Therefore, Egypt would become the beachhead to God's war against the nations. The fallen, rebellious sons of God who were deceiving, dismantling, and dominating the, the nations under the oversight of Satan, God himself, Yahweh, would begin his war campaign starting in Egypt. And what do we know? Israel enters the land of Egypt, and after 400 years, Yahweh not only shows up to rescue his people, but Yahweh shows off his absolutely abundant, all-surpassing power that whatever God in Egypt they served, they could not stop the judgments from coming, and they could not get rid of the judgments that were there. These gods were puny, and the people of Egypt we're at an end. And God says to Pharaoh, I'm doing this. I have raised you up for a time like this, O pagan king, that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Why do you think God said that? Because by doing what he did, and doing where he did it, executing judgment on just not the nation of Egypt and not just the gods the Egyptians served, but rescuing his people, the proclamation would go forth both by humans and divine beings. It would be a tidal wave, an aftershock of epic proportions. Yahweh is on the move. Yahweh and his army are on the move. And who would fear? Everyone. Everyone would fear. According to Exodus 12, 12, Yahweh put Egyptian, all the Egyptian gods into public shame by executing judgments. Not only that, but he put them into utter shame because there were multitudes of Egyptians who saw what Yahweh did, and during the exodus of Israel leaving Egypt, some of the Egyptians said, yeah, we're going with them. We're going with them. Yahweh chooses the line of Abraham, makes his people special. And he then establishes the priesthood. Make a note. Yahweh establishes the priesthood. Then Yahweh, at this point, after rescuing his people, begins to give Moses instructions on the mountain that the priesthood would be established. According to Exodus 19, verse 6, they would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is so incredibly important. So do not miss this. The priesthood was not established to take away the sins of Israel. The priesthood and the sacrifices that they were obligated to make were not the, for the remission of Israel's sins. 
the priesthood was established so that Israel's conquering king could be in their midst. The, the priests mediated the conditions between people and a holy God so that a sinful people could have a holy conquering king in their midst, unlike any other nation. That Yahweh would say, I'm going to fight your battles. I am with you. I'm going to win your war. Just trust me and watch. I'm there with you. And Yahweh, he would dwell among his people for the very first time since the Garden of Eden. But this time, he is not a God so friendly to leisurely walk among the garden and have a conversation. No, this God was going to enter the land and be a conquering king and show his people, the nations, and those rulers and authorities that have rebelled against Yahweh since the Tower of Babel, I am the one true God he was going to war and eventually they crossed that Jordan the people of Israel entered the promised land and in Joshua chapter 3 Joshua grabs 12 stones him not specifically but he calls 12 men to get 12 stones and put those 12 stones where the priests walked through the Jordan River. That all of Israel would be able to point back and say, if there was a son or daughter who arose later in generations to say, hey, what are those stones for? Israel would be able to say, those stones show all the surpassing worth of trusting in Yahweh. That because what he says he will do, we can trust him. Those stones show us that he not only is giving us the land, but we can be confident that he is going to see it through to completion. Because if he opened the Jordan for all of us to walk through, he's going to make a way for us to receive his promises. And Joshua, not Moses, would be the leader leading the people of Israel into the land promised to their fathers. They knew what their mission was. They were to drive out the inhabitants of the land and utterly destroy every single artifact, statue, altar, place of worship that those nations had erected previously. And in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, Be strong and courageous. I am with you. Why? Why would he say that to Joshua? Because those in the land and surrounding the land were visibly greater in number, stronger in military, and they had a crazy amount more possessions than the Israelites. The Israelites would look upon them and they would be in the temptation of giving up because there's no way we can do this. They would begin to compare 
themselves to the people. But Joshua was in full confidence, and through his confident faith, he galvanized these people to go into the land and begin to take it. Because Joshua was not comparing the people to Israel. He was comparing the nations to his God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I am with you. Be strong and courageous. And so Yahweh establishes his nation. They go into the land. We see story after story. God would remind them, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm fighting your battles. I'm winning your wars. I'm with you. Which is ultimately just look to everything that's unseen. Believe that I'm here in your midst and I will fight for you. Time after time, they made mistake after mistake. Failure after failure. But he would constantly come and remind them, I'm with you. I'm with you. Trust me. And finally, in Joshua chapter 24, the covenant between Israel and Yahweh was sealed in the land of Shechem. That there was peace on either side. War was at an end. There was still land to take. There was still failure and mistake. But they covenanted with Yahweh and said, this is what we will do. They are finally arriving at their purpose. They have experienced this massive amount of privilege, unlike any other nation and people group in the world, that they would be a special people, that God would be in their midst, and that they would be a completely holy, set-apart nation, unlike any other nation. And now they finally enter into their position. We've been given a task to be a light to the nations. But we know the story. They were supposed to look to God and worship Him alone, but instead, they looked to the nations and began to worship their gods. What happened was Israel turned away from Yahweh, looked to the nations, worshipped their false gods, and according to Isaiah 9, they were plunged into utter darkness. They became corrupt, mixed with the nations. They lost their priesthood, inevitably losing the presence of God, and ultimately they lost the rights to their nationhood, and they lost their land. They were deceived in their mind, dismantled generationally, and dominated by the enemies that they could not see. And they stopped worshiping their king. One could say that Israel exchanged their privilege of being Yahweh's people for empty pleasures. In exchanging their privilege for empty pleasures, they abandoned their position of being the light, the only light to the darkened world around them. The people eventually went into captivity, captured, carried away, scattered, and shamefully now under the rule and reign of not Yahweh, but the nations and their oppressive gods. And they remained there in utter darkness until Jesus showed up. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus shows up and for the very first time enters the land himself and brings light, a light for the nations. Christ's victory is visible both for the unseen realm and the seen 
This is the gospel narrative condensed. Jesus enters the land just like Joshua, but in the case, Jesus is not on a conquest of land, but he has come to liberate its captives. He grabs 12 men. The first thing that Joshua does when he enters the land is he grabs 12 stones to remember what Yahweh has done. The first thing Jesus does when he enters the land is he grabs 12 men who would be not just stones, but living stones proclaiming that God does what he says he would do, and he has done it through Jesus. So repent and believe because the kingdom is at hand. They would be moving, but they would be ruling and reigning over all creation that has rebelled since the beginning of time. And in the life of Jesus, he showcases that his divine authority is over Satan, sin, and death. The demons knew him by name, and they knew exactly what he was going to do to them. And so in every instance, they say, has our time come? Please don't torment me. Because they knew who Jesus was, the one who would execute final judgment on all those in rebellion, both in the seen and unseen realm. I mean, they knew that there's a prison that has been holding demonic forces since Noah's time, and those guys are just waiting to be judged. Oh, what fear. What fear the enemy has of our King Jesus. And in his death, Jesus willingly for the joy set before him endures the cross and dies. And when he dies, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, the spiritual prison that held these demonic entities since Noah's flood, Jesus descended there. And do you know what he declared? I'm here. You tried to dismantle the seed, but you didn't even come close. I have not only arrived, but I have finished my work. Yahweh is on the move. Do you know what kind of explosive shockwave would have shook that unseen realm? Fear and trembling. Fear and and trembling Yahweh again is on the move not to campaign war not to conquest land but to liberate the captives therein and he ends he ends his message to them in the prison by resurrecting gone but he resurrects back to new life he commissions his disciples as their king. And the renewed the, not a, the renewed privilege and position he would give to all the Jews who would swear allegiance to him. But listen to this. Amazing, amazing. He would not only give this renewed privilege and position back to the Jews who would swear allegiance to him, but now he is freely offering this privilege and position to all, without distinction, any ethnicity, in any location, 
they give, they get this position and privilege if they swear their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And he tells his disciples at the end before he leaves, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Because our job is not to conquest land. Our job is to liberate the captives. Israel, during her conquest, the further they got from the land, the more weary they became. And just like Israel, the further the church gets from Pentecost, Christ still had not returned. The war in the spiritual realm was still raging. And Peter writes to Gentiles, not Jews, Peter writes to Gentiles, exiles, sojourners, the lonely, the confused, those suffering under various trials. Do not be deceived, brothers. Take care of your family because the evil one seeks to dismantle it. Do not be dominated so as to be distracted by what God has called you to do. Understand this, advance the gospel, push forward, don't forget who you are, and don't be distracted in forgetting what Christ has called you to do. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, you are now a part of his chosen race. To his audience, he's saying, you're a part of this that started with Abraham. You're a part of this chosen race, this special people. The privilege of being a part of his family is not out of reach. For we can now see that God has created in Christ a brand new man, a brand new spiritual people, one where ethnicity, linguistics, and cultural norms no longer are borders or walls, but they're bridges in connecting us. Although vastly different we all are from each other, we are the same brothers and sisters in this chosen race founded by God the Father and accomplished through Jesus Christ and appropriated to us through the Holy Spirit. So, no matter what your family history may be, no matter where you previously lived or live now, the privilege of being his is yours. Peter says, you are not just a chosen race, but you are a part of his royal priesthood and his holy nation. The privilege of being royal priests is no longer for a select group And living under his rule and reign is no longer reserved for people living in with living in specific boundaries. So matter so no matter what, no matter what, whatever you have gone through, whatever you are going through, you are royal. You are his priest. You are his set apart holy nation. Peter is encouraging these Gentiles. You're priests. Do you know what that means? It's it's no longer like Israel where he was their conquering king in their midst. But because we are royal priests, the veil has been torn and we are now in the most holy of holies. It's not about God being in our midst. God is trying to show you, no, 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 no. I'm not coming down to you 
You've come up to me. You're in my presence. There is a huge, huge difference. And he's saying to these people, listen, who you are, although it may look like nothing on the outside, in the seen realm, in the unseen realm, you possess everything. Peter is helping them in light of their situation to see that they are blessed beyond measure. They are privileged. But Peter wants them to make the connection who you are and what you are to do. You have been chosen. You have become priests. You are a holy nation. You are his so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That in spite of their circumstances, they can proclaim the excellencies of him who blessed them immensely. Why are we tasked to stand in the privilege that we have been given, the blessing from the Father, to stand in that privilege and step out to proclaim the excellencies of him? Because not only when we proclaim do we rescue the people that are perishing, but when we proclaim, we are triumphantly saying and casting the judgment that is upon every single ruler, authority, cosmic power, and evil force, that they have no power, that they are at an end. So when we proclaim the goodness of God in the seen realm, people hear it and believe. But when we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ in the unseen realm, they hear it and they feel fear there is power in the excellencies of jesus christ privilege is our kingdom mindset and proclamation is our kingdom business we are a long way from pentecost these believers in first peter were a ways off but we are really far. And Jesus Christ, our King, has still not returned. And the time of trouble is indeed at hand. And Peter's words to these exiles, his encouragement to them, is all the more necessary for us. As we labor, we do not labor in vain. But we are thankful because we know that our work for him will never be in vain. That these are not empty things that we do in going out and proclaiming the name of Jesus to a dying world. Proclaiming the name of Jesus in the unseen realm of casting final judgment upon our unseen foes. We wrestle against not flesh and blood, but all the rulers and authority and principalities and evil forces. This is why I'm convinced if we do not see what is unseen, that we are chosen, royal, priests, holy, and his possession, that we may buckle under the suffering and trials that will come. 
You may think this is a small move into a new building, but beloved, as we have seen through the Old Testament, there is no such thing as a small move. This is your allotment. And if they are scheming and talking in the unseen realm, then you ought to be preparing your minds for what they have in store. But the good thing is, their schemes and strategies and strongholds are old. And the power of Jesus Christ is mighty. So, we stand up into our privilege. We have been given all things. We are privileged, and we have gained all that we did not deserve, an eternal life that we could have never earned, and he accomplished all things that we could have never done. And so we come to his house, we sit at his table, we eat his food, and we're dressed in his son's righteousness. We have an inheritance waiting for us, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. There's a book with your name. If you have sworn your allegiance to Jesus Christ as your king, there's a book with your name in it that will never be blotted out and that could never be erased. That this inheritance that is waiting for the day for you to take possession of it is physically sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit himself. He is waiting for you to take possession of it. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus ascended into power, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Where? In the heavenly places. Where in the heavenly places? Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named in this age and also into the one to come. When he raised you up, you can't see it, but he wrote it. Where are you? Here? No, you're seated with him, according to Ephesians. My, what privilege we have received. We have been blessed beyond measure, according to his surpassing greatness. So you have been blessed so that you can do something? That's not what Ephesians says. Ephesians says you have been blessed so that he can show you the immeasurable greatness of his kindness for all of eternity, full stop. He just wants to love you and show you forever. But Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We not only step up into our privilege, but we step out into our position. We have been given all things so that we could be the only ones now to proclaim the excellencies of him. Israel was blessed, but oh, the church, how she has been immeasurably blessed so that we could not just speak, but we could actually be the very mouthpiece of God as if God himself was speaking through us and appealing to this generation, come to Christ and be saved, be reconciled to God and become a friend, because salvation is today.
This, this is our position. This is what we ought to be doing. But so many times we're deceived in thinking that we are less and that God is not enough. So many times our families are dismantled by the evil one. That we shrink back and recoil because our family is not what it should be. So many times we're dominated by the things of this world that daily distract us from doing what we ought to be doing. The enemy will try to do his absolute best in making the church invisible. But he will do his absolute best in making sure that you're so comfortable, you're so placid, that you will forget to do what your job is. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here's the question. Here's the question. Is it worth it? You may be sitting on the sidelines thinking, man, I've been blessed. And I can sit here, I can come and sit here and feel blessed. I can, I can fill up my cup. But when Jesus walked around humanity, and he healed people. Do you remember one of the, categorically, the things that he always told those whom he healed personally, one-to-one? He would say, just make sure that you don't go off and tell other people what I've done. My time has not yet come. And what would they always do? They would run as fast as they could, and they would tell everybody. Because they experienced physical yet temporary healing. Church, what does it say about us when we have been liberated from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, forgiven, chosen, made royal, seated with him in the heavenlies, and we keep those things to ourselves? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to suffer slight embarrassment, to fumble over your words, to feel like maybe what you say will be miscommunicated? But is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. I'd like us all just to take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes, and ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We have been blessed with so much. And we have been given a position to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Not conquesting a land, but liberating captives. It will be worth it. Every ounce of energy that you give, every distraction that you say no to, every time you turn off that TV to pray, 
Every time you allot time to spend with your children, it will be worth it. Every time you step out and proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, it will be worth it. Because in the end, we will be poured out for something that we could be proud of. And when we see his possession and the treasure of his people fully and finally visible, his mission finished, our time in Pasadena over, we will stand proud, not because we did something for him, but because he took us ordinary people. And through our privilege of being his kids, he did something extraordinary. While others will stand thankful that they made it, my prayer for us is that we will stand thankful that we got to be a part of it. The fulfillment to his mission, both in the world and here in Pasadena, will eventually end. And all that we've done for him will be to the unending and ever-increasing joy of his people. And when we see the very face of God himself, we will unanimously say we should have given more. For if eternal days are far too short to sing his praise, then temporal things should be the easiest to give up. So we stand in our privilege and we proclaim his excellencies. Jesus is king, he is one, and he's coming back. So be strong and courageous because he's with us even to the very end.